0: I think what it really is, it's, it's just showing us how integrated those supply chains are, whether you're producing cars or whether you're growing fresh produce or whatever it is you're doing. These supply chains, you know, there's not very many products that get produced by themselves.
1: This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me, a repeat guest on Culture at a Crossroads, we have Chris Ragan from the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University in Montreal. Thanks for doing
0: this. Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. First repeat guest, I believe. So this is big. Oh, hey, there we go. I'm going to put that on my CV. Excellent. <laughs> well, Chris,
1: as a faculty at McGill, you may not be as privy to this information as, say, a student. But I'm curious because I went to Western. That's my that's my alma mater. And our arch rival was Queens. Queens-Western, it's got this historic rivalry. McGill has been around for a long time. Who would be that rival to you guys? <laughs>
0: Well, McGill was started in 1821. So last year was in fact our 200th anniversary. So that means oh this, year, this year we are starting our third century. So who is our arch our, our rival? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, you know, maybe we're arrogant enough that we don't like to think there's any competition at all. <laughs> or, or maybe we... Yeah. But we say that probably while we sort of look over our shoulder at University of Toronto or maybe way over to the West at UBC. Or maybe... You know, hopefully, maybe we look down at at Harvard. You know, a lot of people talk about Harvard <laughs> as America's McGill. You know, when we really want to think uh, good things about ourselves, we uh, we say things like that. But uh, I think I don't know. There's probably a different answer for everybody.
1: <laughs> I appreciate the I appreciate you humoring me with that response. Very good. Well, you do some uh, some great work at McGill. And uh, some of the work you do is related to inflation, which, as you know, has been a big topic of conversation in Canada during this pandemic. Can you just kind of go back in time with me for a second as to when inflation came into Canada and why it did, along with the rest of the world? What's the backstory on this?
0: So let me say that Canada and many, many advanced countries had a rather... Uh, unpleasant experience with inflation in particular in the late 60s and through the 1970s into the early 80s. If you actually graph the inflation rate in Canada or the United States or the UK or many other um, kind of Western advanced countries, you will see what is often called the twin peaks of inflation, which is a, a, a spike of inflation in the early 1970s and a spike again in the late 70s, early 80s. And those spikes in Canada's case, they went up. You know, inflation went up to eleven, twelve, thirteen percent, and then came back down again in the mid seventies, and then went back up again in the late seventies. And it looks that graph looks very similar across a bunch of countries. And there were several things that went into that. Uh, what played a key role in those inflation experiences were massive increases in the price of oil and other commodities in the in the early and then again late seventies, combined with I think uh, a not very successful policy response by central banks when when those commodity prices increased in a, in a huge way in the seventies in two different occasions, we as economists and policymakers didn't fully understand what was going on, and we and we had never really seen what we now call supply shocks on that scale before, and that really led many countries to the view that, okay, look, we've got to get inflation down, and once we get it down, we've got to keep it down. And so in Canada, we were the second country after New Zealand in 1991 to adopt what is called inflation targeting, and where the central bank explicitly targets the rate of inflation and targets it at a low rate. And our um, target for inflation has been 2% since 1995, and our average actual rate of inflation has been almost exactly 2% since 1995, um, if you average it over that, whatever, 25-year period. Um, And so people of your generation, because you're a lot younger than I am, you have grown up kind of not thinking much about inflation, right? Inflation has been basically 2% plus or minus a little bit, and it's been not in the headlines. It's been not talked about. It's been boring. It's been It's been ignored. It's been low enough to be ignored, which to me is a huge success of our inflation-fighting experience. But as you now know, in the last year, we've been talking about inflation. That's really helpful. Great overview. Inflation is something that happens. And I think what we've learned over time is that our policies, in particular our monetary policies from our central bank, can play a very important role in You know producing high inflation if you wanted high inflation or more to the point keeping inflation low if you want low inflation let's back up to what inflation is i mean inflation when we say inflation is two percent that means on average across the economy prices are going up. Prices for goods and services are going up by 2%. Some of them are going up by 10%. Some of them are falling by 5%. But the average across the whole basket of goods and services that the typical consumer uh, spends on is going up at 2%. So that's what happened from 1995 to last year. But now we see that that 2% has become 4% or 5% or 7% in the United States. And so Prices are always changing in the economy. Individual prices are always changing. But what the central banks in most of our advanced countries have been doing is trying to keep the average rate of increase down to 2%.
1: Super helpful. Well, I want to pick back up on the response of the central banks, but if we could just flush out some of the reasons why we have this high inflation at this particular cultural moment in Canada. Guys like you have attributed it to primarily two things, supply chain disruptions and pent-up demand. Supply chain disruptions, if we could start with that. Uh, Could some of this have been prevented or was it inevitable with the pandemic?
0: So that's a great question. Uh, So supply chain disruptions are my first of three actual reasons for inflation we can talk about. Okay. I don't think anybody 18 months ago was really thinking forward clearly enough to predict the supply chain disruptions. And in particular, I don't think anybody was making the argument that they would be as pervasive and as important as they have proven to be. And what we've been doing is, you know, basically over the past six months, we've been learning, you know, it seems like every week we learn about a new interesting story about supply chain disruptions. <laughs> and I I think what it really is, it's, it's just showing us um, how integrated those supply chains are whether you're producing cars or whether you're growing fresh produce or whatever it is you're doing these supply chains, you know, there's not very many products that get produced by themselves, right? Most things have inputs and most things have long chains of inputs and many of those supply chains go across international borders and many international borders. So and that's a That's really a, an aspect of globalization is that we have built these international sort of just-in-time delivery integrated supply chains. And the pandemic has laid bare how integrated those are. And and so and they cascade on one another, right? So if, if one product can't be produced because, you know, you can't find the workers because the workers are stuck at home isolating for COVID, then, well, if they can't produce their piece in the supply chain, then the next piece in the supply chain can't be produced either because it all just cascades on each other. And... So I I can't really see what anybody could have done about that. And I actually, I don't really think that there's a policy response today. I certainly don't think a central bank or a fiscal authority can do anything. I think think these supply chains just have to get sorted out themselves. So that's the first cause, I think, of inflation that we are observing today and have been for the last, let's say, six months. The second thing is pent-up demand. And pent-up demand is really coming from two places. Pent-up demand is coming from millions of people like me who were lucky enough during the pandemic not to lose their jobs. And, and I really want to emphasize that you know, I have been extremely lucky to be in a job where I didn't like the pandemic. But it didn't interrupt my income. I went home, I taught my classes, and I did my work from my home on my laptop exactly the way I'm talking to you now. And so I was one of those lucky ones whose income stream was maintained, but I couldn't do the, ordin- the, the things I ordinarily do with that income. You know, and I don't buy a lot of goods anymore. You know, I buy books online, but I go out for dinner and I, you know, I I do a little bit of traveling to see family and things like that. Well, that stuff wasn't being done. And so as a result of those expenditures not happening, the income, the unspent income piles up in your bank account. Well, I think there's millions of people around Canada and around the world for whom that is true. That's one cause of pent up demand. But the second cause is that the government, the federal government, during the pandemic, as you know, provided pretty generous income relief to households, to small businesses, sometimes to large businesses. And I think it was actually very well motivated. I mean, the basic motivation here was if there's a whole bunch of people who basically can no longer earn their incomes, then we are going to provide you with financial payments so that you can afford to buy your groceries and so that you can afford to make your mortgage payments. It wasn't designed to get you back to work. It was actually designed to allow you to not go to work, but to not starve in the process, right? Well, I think what we've learned after the fact is that many of those SERB payments and SERB then got uh, kind of absorbed into a reformed EI system. But many of those financial relief packages for individuals ended up being quite large, probably larger than they needed to be. And that's feeding into the pent-up demand as well. And so now what you've got, Dave, is you've got these pent-up demand and the supply disruptions happening at exactly the same time. And the supply disruptions are keeping the supply of goods lower than they otherwise would be. And the pent-up demand is keeping the demand for goods and services higher than they otherwise would be. And so that's not a very nice combination, right? You've got demand outstripping supply, and that's just adding fuel to the inflationary fire that's already going on. I want to just also
1: drill down on the uh, supply chain disruption. I feel like it's hard for us to ignore uh, what's happening in Ottawa at the moment with the Freedom Convoy. There are obviously some political undertones to this, but is this also... One of those stories that you've alluded to that would make a difference as far as the supply disruption of of people that uh, can't get back to work? Or do you think it's just such a small minority that it's just sort of a, a political story, like from an economics perspective? Are you concerned at all?
0: So let's make the distinction between the vaccine mandate that has now applied to truckers crossing the 49th parallel, right? And then the protest, which is a response to that, okay? Now, the vaccine mandate, as I understand it, what I've heard on the radio uh, in a few different places, is that you know roughly 90% of Canadian truckers and U.S. truckers are vaccinated. And so the vaccine mandate for crossing the border will apply to 10%, at most 10% of the, of the truckers. So if in fact this vaccine mandate leads to some trucks not going across the border that would otherwise go across the border, then that will be a disrupted supply chain, right? Or supply chains. And so either the vaccinated ones are gonna to have to take those trips or they're gonna pile up or, but almost certainly there would be some disruption coming from that. And so that's probably gonna feed into the, to the general problem of disrupted supply chains. Now, the protest that's in response to that um, I don't know whether the protest itself is going to further disrupt supply chains. So if a bunch of truckers are driving across the country uh, and they're you know, driving across the country for a protest, maybe with empty trucks, I don't know, um, then I guess one could ask, what would they be doing if they weren't protesting? Well, maybe they would be shipping bananas from Saskatchewan to Ontario. I don't know the vaccine mandate itself is probably going at least for a short amount of time is probably going to disrupt those supply chains a little bit more but of course th- this is a great example of how in this pandemic governments not just federal but provincial governments as well and and you know and city governments have been making these trade-offs trade-offs between public health and legal issues about freedom and individual rights and economic effects. I mean, the pandemic, as terrible as it is, is a fascinating illustration of the complexity of public policy and how, you know, it's not just public health and the and the, the medical science that feeds into these decisions. It's not just economics that feeds into these decisions. It's not just legal issues or constitutional liberty issues that feed into these policy decisions. It's all of this stuff that feeds into these decisions. And the trade-offs between these things get very complicated.
1: Mm, very well put, Chris. That's uh, helpful, especially the 90% that we need to keep in mind. So moving on to your third cause then, you've, you've touched on supply chain disruptions, pent up demand. What's the third reason for the inflation that we have right now in Canada?
0: So the third reason, and I'm not sure that it's yet a reason for the inflation that we have seen already.
1: Hmm. Okay. Interesting distinction.
0: But maybe it is. Maybe it is. But it's going to be a reason for inflation in, in the future if we're not careful. The third reason, and we're not talking about it much, is the massive expansions monetary expansions that the central banks have designed over the past two years. So in the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve in the United States, they embarked, starting about 18 months ago, 20 months ago, they embarked on what they call quantitative easing, which is a massive purchase of typically government bonds with freshly created money, okay? Now, central banks have created money Since time immemorial, that's what central banks do. So there's nothing unusual about central banks creating money or printing money, if you want to call it printing money. Um, But the scale on which they were doing it was enormous. So for an example, the Bank of Canada's balance sheet uh, quadrupled roughly in a period of six months. Ordinarily, that's a balance sheet that grows at 5% a year. Okay, And now it's quadrupling in six months. So it's a massive expansion. And what that really means is that the central banks have created new money and they've used that newly created money to purchase government bonds from whoever in the financial world, typically large financial institutions and pension funds that have bonds to sell. The result of that has been that the financial system is massively liquid today. If the commercial banks that are holding that cash, and they are holding a huge amount of it in their accounts at the central bank, if that's all they do, then inflation is probably not going to be a problem. But what commercial banks are in the business to do is to make loans and then to make profits by making loans. So at some point as the economy recovers, and of course we are really doing well in terms of an economic recovery, there will be a serious demand for credit from households, from small businesses, from big businesses. They'll be coming to those banks and asking for loans, and the commercial banks will be making those loans. And at that point, that freshly created money will start to feed into credit growth in the economy. And then it will start to create inflationary pressures. So the central bank, and all the central banks know this, all the central banks know that they have to start pulling back that monetary expansion as the economy recovers, but they don't want to pull it back too quickly because that would choke off the recovery. But if they leave it too late, then it will fuel inflation. So whether you're the governor of the Bank of Canada or England, or you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the United States, you're, you feel yourself on this in on this sort of uh, in a balancing act. You're saying, okay, we know we're going to have to start raising interest rates and start bringing back, pulling back this newly created money, but do we, you know, we can't do it too fast and we can't do it too slowly.
1: Would you say that this pullback of monetary expansion goes hand in hand with central banks in due time raising the interest rate in Canada, in a country like here?
0: Yeah, th- those will go hand in hand. So I think what's going to happen is that the central banks are going to start by, central banks prefer to communicate their actions through interest rates. That has been the sort of chosen instrument and the chosen way to communicate. Because if I tell you that the monetary monetary base is expanded by $5 billion, you don't really know what that means. But if I tell you that the the, the very short-term interest rate has changed by 50 basis points or half a percentage point, you know what that means, right? So um, I think what we're gonna see the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada both signaled in the last couple of days that they are going to start raising interest rates probably next time out, which is six or eight weeks from now. And I, th- I think what financial markets are now expecting is that over, the next, over this year, 2022, we will probably see six or more interest rate increases, probably totaling 1.5 percentage points or more. Okay, But at the same time, the central banks will be thinking about reducing shrinking that balance sheet at the same time okay and the two things may not happen exactly in tandem but they're going to happen roughly at the same time
1: now just one follow-up to that chris and you don't need to go into great depth on this but i just would be interested to hear what you think when this ensues will this cool the real estate market that has been so hot over the last couple of
0: years Oh, I think so. I mean, just, just imagine if, if the, uh, the Bank of Canada's target for the overnight interest rate, which is currently at 0.25, if that goes up, let's say, 150 basis points. I think you can expect mortgages to go from, I think they're roughly at 2% today. I think you can expect them to go up by about 150 basis points. So if the mortgage goes from 2% to 3.5%, does that slow things down? I think the answer is yes. It's funny, you know, when I, my wife and I bought our house in 1991, our mortgage rate was 1475 Okay? And then several years later, we renegotiated it, quote unquote, down to nine point five, I think it was. So when I see mortgage rates at two percent or even three point five percent, you know I think, wow, that that's that's just that's fabulous. That's a super low rate. But of course, um, the people that are buying houses today and with a two percent mortgage or even a three point five percent mortgage that it might be by the end of the year, um, they're facing house prices that are much, much higher. So the house prices are way higher than they were in my day, but the interest rates are way lower. And if, of course, it's the combination of the two that really dictate your ability to, to service the mortgage, right?
1: Very helpful. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time, but I'll just close with asking you the biblical question that I'd prefaced you on beforehand. So you already, in some ways, spoke to this that you think that it would have been so hard to prevent with policy uh, disruption in the form of supply chains. Is there anyone that you know of as an economist that you've that, that sort of struck you that, wow, they've actually done a pretty incredible job. They would have the foresight to be able to prepare for something like this. Some of my audience would be familiar with the story of Joseph leading to the seven years of famine and uh, every country in the world at that time was going to Egypt because they were ready for the famine. And, and you know, we're kind of in a similar kind of like famine-esque time.
0: So Joseph had foresight. Or inside information, in the Bible stories that I read, it never talks about where he stores all of the supplies for seven years, right? In the real world, foresight would be great if you know if you had the foresight that okay, there will be a pandemic, let's prepare. That'd be great if you had the foresight, but you also have to think about what would that foresight lead you to do. So, for example, would it mean that we? Purchase and stockpile a bunch of personal protective equipment. Well, so we if we purchase and stockpile a bunch of PPE, then you've got to buy it. You've got to spend the money on it. But then you've got to store it someplace, right? If we're going to build, if we're going to expand our ICU capacity, so that next pandemic, that's not the binding constraint. Well, that means you're going to build a bunch of ICU capacity, probably that you don't need during normal times. So now you're built. You're spending serious money to build stuff that sits around idle during most of the time but then gets used to its capacity during the next pandemic i'm not sure humans are very good at the foresight thing
1: we're so short term
0: yeah it's you know my guess is we'll get through this pandemic we'll hopefully learn some lessons we'll probably do some things differently but we probably won't do all of the things that we should do because we tend to say, "Okay, whew, we're through that. You know, let's do the things now that we have to do, and let's get on with life." That's, I think, that's probably human nature. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or whatever to really understand, you know, what it is about humans that makes us not very good at thinking beyond the short term. Uh, but if you can, if you can, if you can actually get people to be thinking about the long term and to prepare then I think we should do. And let's take those lessons from Joseph. I'm all in favor. Joseph and God. Joseph and God.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess, well, from this perspective, foresight has to be linked to divine. But thought-provoking implications on uh, where we go beyond this place. And really appreciate you giving us some insight on uh, an area that can easily be difficult to kind of parse through as an average Canadian. Your analysis and your ability to communicate is such a gift to us in Canada. Thank you so much, Chris Reagan.
0: Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our next one.
1: Hey, that's pretty good. For an atheist to admit that we can't know the future in and of ourselves, there needs to be divine intervention. But even though God didn't warn us of COVID like he did with Joseph of the drought, he does use every trial we go through for us to learn from. And I think financially, God strips away what can become financial idols like home ownership. It's a good thing, right? But it's not an ultimate thing. As you come away from this conversation, hopefully with some fresh insights of how our economy operates, remember that in God's economy, it's different. It's based on His love as demonstrated at the cross. The only thing that fluctuates here is how we perceive of this love. But thank goodness, it's God who has determined its value as ultimate. And if you want to find out anything more about Chris Reagan, you can head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com
0: next time on culture at the crossroads
1: he is an nhl hall of famer and considered one of the greatest hockey players of all time mike gartner will share about his career his teammate who led him to jesus and with the olympics coming to a close he'll shed some light on what it means to compete for canada
0: it's a blessing it's also a lot of pressure because there's only one color medal that canadians want and that's gold all the time and it should be that way and it is that way and we always felt that But when you win the gold, it is a special thing. When you put that Canadian jersey on, it is very special representing your country.
1: For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.